2022 was a devastating year for our planet. From floods in Pakistan that affected over 33 million people, to unprecedented droughts in East Africa, which likewise impacted tens of millions, the violent forces of climate change were on full display. It's little wonder why, in March 2023, through their sixth assessment report, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, or the IPCC, noted with urgency that climate change has caused substantial damages and increasingly irreversible losses, and going further to note that the extent and magnitude of climate change impacts are larger than estimated in previous assessments. Even with notable progress being made in tackling climate change and with various adaptive measures being legislated to help vulnerable communities, the world still finds itself in the position of not doing enough. The impacts of climate change are here. They are undeniable and upending. Over our six episodes of Climate Change, America and the World, the LSE Phelan U.S. Center will bring together expert analysis on the far-ranging impacts of climate change, from its effects on the forced movement of people to the politicization of climate change in American politics. Our approach is to be diverse in our consideration of how climate change is felt by different people in different places. Although we are bringing to the fore America's own responsibility and response to one of the greatest challenges of our time, the series is not only about America, it's about America and the world. In our last episode, we uncovered the links between climate change and the forced movement of people. We discussed the way climate change interacts with other prevailing social issues like violence and political corruption to help create the conditions for forced migration. We also looked to underline possible solutions to this problem that requires smarter funding for development and safer passage for migrants. Forced migration breeds insecurity, both at the personal and national level. This episode of Climate Change, America and the World is centered on the intersections between climate change, conflict, and security. At the 27th Conference of the Parties, or COP27, President Biden stated that the climate crisis is about human security, economic security, environmental security, national security, and the very life of the planet. In this one statement, President Biden underlined the multiple areas where security can be affected by climate change. Further to this, the 2022 Biden-Harris administration's national security strategy did, at least in rhetoric, recognize the urgency of this issue by stating that the climate crisis is the existential challenge of our time, and that tensions will further intensify as countries compete for resources and energy advantage. The current administration has grounded climate change within the realm of security. But how do climactic disruptions contribute to possibilities for armed conflict between nations? What is the role of the American military in potentially exacerbating the current climate crisis? And in what ways are we made more insecure because of climate change? To help us unpack these questions, we are joined by two experts. Professor Nita Crawford is the Montague Burton Professor of International Relations at Balliol College at the University of Oxford. In her work, Professor Crawford has spent years examining the role of the American military in international relations, including the contribution of American military missions to climate change. Sherry Goodman is the Secretary General of the International Military Council on Climate and Security and a senior fellow at the Wilson Center's Environmental Change and Security Program and Polar Institute. Through our conversation with Professor Crawford and Sherry Goodman, we hope to shed light on the way climate change can increase global insecurity and to uncover ways our planet and its inhabitants can become more secure.
It's possible that for many people, when we think of climate change, perhaps in the more colloquial, everyday use, the military and the act of waging war does not immediately enter one's mind as an obvious source of carbon emissions. Professor Nita Crawford offers insight into why that may be the case and explores the extent to which we are hindered in combating climate change without dealing with the carbon costs of war. I think there are two reasons that the military isn't top of mind. First, the standard explanation or narrative of how climate change uh, began, how greenhouse gases accumulated, begins with industrialization in the late 18th century and early 19th century. And it does not look at the factors which spurred industrialization of certain kinds. So uh, if you begin with that, then you're not looking at this particular activity. I think the second reason that the military's contribution to greenhouse gas emissions has been essentially ignored is that really we think of war as a separate activity and we often don't question its causes or uh, we don't question the role of military force and we don't look at the way militaries in fact affect the industrial system, though they do have profound effects getting um, from the weapons that are, are made through the mobilization in war that changes the technologies that are available for the next round of industrialization. So I, I think it's both that larger narrative and the way we treat war as a separate activity. Well, the United States military is the most technologically advanced and one of the larger militaries in the world. And of course, um, in order to have this huge footprint, which requires fuel be taken to more than 750 bases around the world, um, you use a lot of it. And uh, it's because the United States is a global, has a global military with the capacity to project power anywhere at any time that its uh, emissions are large. But the story is also historical in the sense that the U.S. military actually got the bases it had in part because it wanted to be able to make war, but it needed uh, to have fuel depots everywhere. And that's uh, the impetus to get many of these bases, for example, the base in Hawaii or Okinawa, those are a legacy and they are continually used today for refueling. But war is expensive, not just in financial terms, but also in the way it can damage our planet. The United States' ability to project power globally and to offer security guarantees to its allies is linked also to its ability to produce the level of emissions necessary to sustain such an enterprise. Security within this context, therefore, means that fuel use and the continual search for fuel depots was and is deemed necessary. This is an argument that Professor Crawford presents in greater detail in her 2022 book, The Pentagon, Climate Change, and War, Charting the Rise and Fall of U.S. Military Emissions. What got us here was done deliberately, and so any attempt to make meaningful progress in reducing military emissions must be done deliberately as well. To this end, Sherry Goodman has spent years shaping the discourse on the issue of climate change and security, in part by discussing climate change as a threat multiplier. So, you know, I have long characterized climate change as a threat multiplier. 
We call it a threat multiplier uh, because it amplifies and aggravates other security risks we face around the world, whether it's uh, terrorism, weapons of mass destruction. Today, we see increasing food and water insecurity as the what we call the threat multipliers of climate change, drought, sea level rise, extreme weather events, storm surge, wildfires, permafrost thaw and collapse, ocean acidification. We could go on and on about the changes, the physical changes occurring because temperatures are warming and sea levels are rising. And those all change how we we live in society today. So it affects our national security, but it also affects our human security. A threat multiplier is an activity that exacerbates precarious circumstances to the point of potential large-scale violence. Climate change in its own ways, argues Sherry Goodman, is a threat multiplier. Luckily, it does appear that there has been a growing realization within American military circles of the link between climate change, military production, and national and international security. First, I think since you know, 2007, with the release of the CNA Military Advisory Board report on national security and the threat of climate change and characterizing climate change as a threat multiplier, there has been growing general, what I would say, awareness in the national security community in the U.S. and in many NATO and allied member countries who have addressed this in a general way to talk about the systemic nature of the threat, the cascading and compound risks to understand the threat multiplier in a very general strategic way. But what's happening now, especially in the US in the last two years, and also with NATO really becoming very active, is to um, begin to apply this thinking at a, a level that can make operational difference to our armed forces. Because it's one thing to say, Yes, climate change is going to affect how we operate in the Pacific or in the Arctic. But it's another to really take that understanding of the climate science and the systemic risk and then apply it in a war game or a scenario for future action. That's what's happening today. Now that we've established the links between climate change and insecurity, what are some contemporary examples where climate change comes to interact with broader structural issues of poverty and violence? How does this interaction breed conflict and what can be done? Just if you take Africa and you look in the Sahel in the areas that are at greatest risk of vulnerability, um, instability because of radicalization, of, of vulnerable populations, and populations become vulnerable when they don't have enough food, water, and shelter. And that's when we've seen a variety of terrorist groups emanating from the U.S., but now growing roots across North Africa and spreading well into Asia and beyond, take advantage of vulnerable populations. And it's, it's not a coincidence that the place, the locations in Africa, the countries where U.S. forces and Special operations forces have been most likely to be deployed over the last decade are also the most climate vulnerable regions. So we have to understand how these forces all interconnect. And also, these are also regions where population is expanding at a very fast clip. So we have to understand the underlying root causes here. 
what is the response to climate change caused instability? Does a great power like the United States or any um, European power or China become more involved in conflicts that are fueled by the instability that's caused by, let's say, massive migration or drought or uh, fires? Uh, it could. That's one potential response is to say that what we ought to do is be prepared for a climate change caused war. Another response would be to increase the capacity of governments in those places that are more vulnerable to climate change, to uh, any potential link to increased conflict or exacerbating existing conflicts by increasing their capacity to both uh, reduce emissions and, and reducing our own emissions in the North and their capacity to respond to crises will make those links potentially from climate change to conflict less likely to materialize. Climate change in, in the Arctic, you know, underscores how climate change has opened up a whole new area of geostrategic competition in our lifetime, because we now have a region of the world that historically was characterized by cooperation, which is now today as much about competition and made worse by Putin's war in Ukraine, uh, because the institutions that have served as that cooperative mechanism like the Arctic Council are not functioning with Russia today. So, you know, there are growing risks because of Russia's militarization and um, nuclearization of the region, its ambition to convert the northern sea route into a toll road for transportation and open up new shipping lanes, which China itself would like to take advantage of and create a polar silk road stretching from Asia across to ports in Europe. And so now we see with retreating sea ice and warming temperatures and collapsing and thawing permafrost, both opportunities to seize the resource wealth of that region, but also the risks of both infrastructure collapse, environmental degradation, potential risks for accidents. And, and so we have to be very careful now when operating in that region because it's still remote and very dangerous to operate in. You could have an incident in the Arctic where you might not know for a number of days or even longer because of the remoteness, the lack of communications, and so the um, uncertainty there could lead to um, unfortunate uh, consequences. And we need to be able to protect and deconflict those risks from escalating beyond which any authority would want them to. Climate change can make already unstable regions more unstable. What's also vital to consider, however, is the way climate change can take something that is within the realm of cooperative politics and turn it into a security issue. This is a process that scholars refer to as securitization. Sherry Goodman understood this reality in reference to the Arctic Circle, an area which, as the polar ice caps have continued to melt, has introduced a new geostrategic focus. And critically, by expanding our understanding of what leads to violence and instability, like climate change-related droughts, we can begin to interrogate our own biases in viewing certain parts of the world as being seemingly more prone to violence than others. As Sherry Goodman noted, it is not a coincidence that American military deployment often occurs in places that are some of the most climate-vulnerable regions on the planet. 
While climate change may not have directly caused the primary or the first instances of poverty and violence, it certainly exacerbates these conditions of insecurity. As the United States began to consolidate global power and began to put in place the systems and institutions that define the current international system, American security continued to become linked to security developments elsewhere. The possible good news, however, is that by establishing a connection between climate change and security, tackling climate change may be made more urgent. Indeed, in a political climate that can often be quite polarizing, climate resilience and military decarbonization has been one of the few areas to garner bipartisan support in American politics. I would point to the military and the national security community as, um, in some ways, an island of bipartisanship because no member of Congress wants to lose their military base. They're all affected by climate impacts, whether it's sea level rise and storm surge affecting and eroding the training ranges and training areas of our Atlantic coast bases, or whether it's fire in the West or drought. Um, all of members of Congress want to ensure that their base is climate proofed, climate proofed. And to do that, you have to become resilient and understand the impacts of climate change. I mean, there's been a lot of bipartisan legislation in the last several years in the U.S. on the defense bills on both climate resilience and on decarbonization. And so I think this is more well understood when you get to the security risks, particularly as it applies to our military and protecting um, our men and women in uniform. While we have observed that climate change can exacerbate tensions and lead to insecurity, the central role that security plays in a nation's politics can contribute to bipartisan support for policies that increase security while also potentially leading to more climate-friendly practices. Given this confluence of interests, what are some ways that the U.S. has begun to reduce its military emissions and what else can be done to reduce them further? There are really three parts to that. One is thinking about the components of U.S. military emissions. There are two. The first is installations, that is fixed bases. That's where you heat and light, including training, uh, you cool. And installation energy use is about 30% of the U.S. military's emissions. The rest, that is about 70%, is operational. So installation energy use could be decreased by closing some bases which are no longer necessary. The U.S. military itself, the DOD, acknowledges that they have excess capacity they could also continue to change their mix of fuels at bases, not just closed bases, but, but change how they're generating electricity, heat, and cold where they need to do that. When you look at operations, there's room for reductions as well. About a quarter of U.S. emissions and fuel use has been to patrol the Persian Gulf. That, as the United States is less dependent on Persian Gulf oil could be reduced. And what we've seen, again, over uh, the course of several years is a declining dependency on imported oil from the Persian Gulf and other OPEC countries. As we transition, this will further decline. And we have, with the Fifth Fleet, 
and several bases in the Persian Gulf, the opportunity for reductions there. Now, some of those forces may be shifted over to Indo-Pacific Command, but that if we can reduce tensions with China, needn't be the case. So there are operational ways to reduce fuel use. And it's essential to realize that much of that operational fuel use is for aircraft. So another way to reduce operational emissions would be to decrease the amount of exercises which use aircraft and um, to change the fuel mix on the aircraft. We are, of course, generally in society, trying to decarbonize everything we do, right? You know, we're trying to change the way we power our cars, moving electric. We're trying to um, move off coal and other fossil uses for industrial and building um, heat and power. So we're in this race to a, uh, a decarbonized future. That is also happening on our military forces. You know, in the United States, the military is about 1% of total U.S. energy use, and it has some specific uses where its buying power can make a difference. So, for example, today the, mili the U.S. military is putting microgrids on every major military base, and that's going to enable a very important set of energy security and cybersecurity protections, because if you can get your power on the base and be protected from threats to the broader grid, then you could be more secure and you could use renewable power and better batteries when they're available uh, to enable that, as well as other sources. The military has been reducing its emissions footprint, and it's done this through changing the equipment that it buys and by changing um, very small technical things like how high they fly, uh, how they land, those uh, are actually yielding results, okay? And they've also developed or bought off the commercial shelf technology that is less fuel intensive and therefore less emissions intensive. Although we may often consider bipartisanship or cooperation at the political level to be a good thing for its unifying nature, we may need to be cautious of the character of that bipartisanship. Being unified on destructive policies is less than ideal. Although there is potential for cooperation to reduce military emissions, throughout the 21st century, American political circles have been fairly consistent in their approach to the military. It's that larger cultural disposition over hundreds of years and then the more recent habit uh, in the context of the 9-11 attacks to just say, whatever you want, whatever you need, we'll give it to you. We want to support you. That means that the military hasn't had to make hard choices about what its priorities are. Even though they, they have an enormous budget, it's well over 50% of the discretionary budget of the United States is for the military. And it's been that way, again, for decades. The larger questions about U.S. national interests and priorities are not addressed in the place where there could be some deliberation, which is the Congress, which should be able to talk back to the executive. 
Efforts to decarbonize the American military machine is a productive first step towards reducing emissions and fueling security. It is good news that given the importance of the military within American politics, bipartisan support can be mustered to pursue policies that incidentally reduce the carbon footprint of the US military. But while a good first step, it seems that globally we need greater clarity on what security can look like beyond weapons and beyond armaments. Often, when the idea of security is thought of and debated, it's very easy to limit our focus on military weapons and acts of warfare. It is perhaps precisely for this reason that any rhetoric of investing in conventional military wherewithal and weaponry has been one of the constants of American politics for a long while. Indeed, the 2023 Omnibus Bill, which is a year-long federal spending package for a wide variety of programs, totaled to $1.7 trillion, but of that total amount, $858 billion will be used exclusively for defense funding. The significance of that proportion cannot be understated. Every dollar that is devoted to one area of funding is a dollar that could have been apportioned elsewhere. It is well known that American military spending is higher than any other country, but does that lead to stability? A part of the rationale for massive defense bills is to engender security, but when we consider the effects that military missions have on climate change, is the security long-term? For the entire history of the United States, most political leaders have assumed that military force is effective that it can be controlled, that it's efficient, that um, you can make sure that those you want to kill are killed and those you don't aren't. You, want to, you can save your own soldiers. Um, we believe in the United States that, in fact, um, it's right to use force to defend oneself or to go after what we want. That's, his, that's hundreds of years of history. There is a habit in Congress to give the military what it needs without asking questions, essentially. And in fact, post 9-11, that habit has um, solidified. There are many fewer hearings and discussions um, about either the military budget or even strategies. When they get a budget, from the president in the post 9-11 era, what they've often done is said, yeah, that's great. And here's five or $10 billion more than what you've asked for, because they believe that um, they have to show their support of US foreign policy and uh, demonstrate their patriotism in this way. The United States military spending has increased whether or not the U.S. has had a lot of active duty uh, forces engaged in conflicts. The United States is right now engaged in small conflicts and counterterrorism all over the world. Its military spending is over $800 billion this year. Does U.S. military spending tend to increase other countries' military spending? I would argue it does. The U.S. wants uh, NATO countries to increase their proportion of uh, expenditures and on the military. 
And um, those countries themselves have argued that they should. Um, in the rest of the world, uh, they're encouraged to increase military spending to keep up with their neighbors. We're in an upward spiral for the last several years on military spending, but it doesn't have to stay that way. Although it may be clear that climate change could act as a means for global powers to cooperate on an issue and avoid conflict, the path to such an understanding may not always be so evident. In August of 2022, for example, China announced that it would stop cooperating with the United States on tackling climate change because of Nancy Pelosi's then-recent visit to Taiwan. In conjunction to this, President Biden's 2022 national security strategy named China as America's most consequential geopolitical challenge. Can nations cooperate when security and geopolitical issues exist? And how does the United States reconcile the need to address climate-related issues while geopolitical tensions persist with countries as important as China? Do the United States and China have opposed or similar interests in tackling climate change? Given that the U.S. and China are the world's two largest emitters, and the United States is by far the largest emitter because uh, of the cumulative nature of greenhouse gases, they don't go away. Historically, the United States has put much more carbon into the atmosphere. It is important that these two countries work together to resolve issues. I also believe that because of the on-again, off-again nature of the uh, tensions that are um, both diplomatic and military, the United States ought to think about a, a, a way to reduce the military side, because what the U.S. does, or any country does when, when they ratchet up uh, tensions with another country, is they create incentives for a uh, felt desire on the other side to increase their military forces. So this is an action-reaction dynamic. So when you know the United States has uh, 750 bases overseas and China has one, the Chinese may feel it's important to get another military base or more. So what we ought to do then is think about how is it that we can reduce overall tensions. It's especially important that we reduce tensions so that China does not use coal to build more weapons. Much of Chinese industry is powered by coal and hydropower. Hydropower is not a problem. Coal is. And when that military industrialization from China's largest military corporations um, is ratcheted up, that increases global emissions. As the U.S. continues to invest in its military, other countries, argues Professor Crawford, obtain an incentive to follow suit. This form of brinkmanship not only contributes to instability in the traditional geostrategic manner, but it also includes greater emission productions that can lead to longer-term climate-related damages, which in the end breeds insecurity in other parts of the world. Through reducing tensions between nations and instability in different parts of the world, we can begin to fuel security for more people. By thinking of climate stability, we can begin to identify ways to make more people secure in the long term. This will require, however, a rethinking of America's military decisions. The military doesn't make a lot of these decisions. It's a decision that's made in the White House. The president tells the military what to do. So we have to 
have a discussion about what are American interests. The United States is secure, right? Let's, it's, it's behind two moats. It's, it has a very friendly neighbor to the north and a, a fairly friendly neighbor to the south. The United States is secure. The question is, what is it in addition to its physical security that it wants to, wants to defend? What of its interest does it want to defend? And if the major threat to the world, to our existence, is climate change, then we have to ask ourselves, are we over-insuring against potential threats? Remember, climate change is certain. The possibilities for war are just that, their potential, their risk. We don't want to keep over-insuring, over-buying, over-preparing, because the opportunity costs of that are quite apparent in terms of dollars, but also in terms of emissions. The military is not the solution to the climate problem by any means. And we need to be very clear about that. It points out the need to have a more broad-based development and human security strategy that gets at those root causes, whether it's population, education, food and water security. Now, this is a broad societal effort, the kinds of deep challenges that are being addressed uh, both at the COP and beyond today, uh, there are no easy solutions, but they're ones that increasingly we know if they are not addressed by the larger societal institutions, multilateral institutions, national countries, that the military will be brought in as a sort of 911 force when lives are at risk. And that's what happens. And historically, it's been perhaps responding to an extreme weather event like a typhoon or a cyclone or a hurricane. But increasingly, I think we're going to see what scholars call the, the sort of slow onset events, the droughts, um, be among the triggers for prolonged instability. We know that in certain parts of the world, in Syria, for example, the prolonged drought that preceded that very deadly conflict forced farmers and herders that had lived peaceably in the rural areas to move towards the urban areas. And in the urban areas, they didn't have adequate food, shelter, water, and then they became more vulnerable to politicization and radicalization. And we're seeing that occur around the world now, that when there is drought and food insecurity, in the rural areas, and people are forced to move to the urban areas, the urban megacities or even smaller cities across much of Asia and Africa, and, and potentially even in other continents, are not sufficiently equipped today to handle that large influx of population. In more ways than one, the U.S. is secure in how we traditionally conceive of security. But as Professor Crawford asserts, if climate change is a threat to our existence, then over-insuring in areas of traditional security won't do much good in the fight against climate change. Security in the military sense does not mean security in the human sense. Sherry Goodman points to an unfortunate relationship between climate-related instability and continual policies that underlie climate change. It appears that we are caught in a cycle where climate change-induced droughts and famines contribute to political instability in one part of the world, which 
may encourage the United States or any other state to militarily intervene or provide resources that will contribute to CO2 production and thus exacerbate one of the causes of the initial political instability, namely climate change. Can these issues be addressed within the current political climate? Is the conversation around climate change in the United States overly polarized? And can this polarization prevent any meaningful change in addressing global security concerns in the future? In my judgment, because 77 to 87 percent, depending on the year, of the U.S. government's emissions are due to the military, and we have an overall goal of reducing U.S. government emissions, we have to talk about it. And the fact that the United States can still protect itself and meet its foreign policy and national security goals with a reduced carbon footprint is fine. That's great. But even if it couldn't, we have to think about those emissions. The other thing I would say is that the conversation has certainly been in the past as polarized as you've described over whether or not there is anthropogenic causes to climate change, to global warming, I think we've moved on. Um, I think that the public opinion data shows that most Americans understand that when you put a lot of carbon into the atmosphere, it gets hotter. And then when you put a lot of water vapor into the atmosphere, the storms are worse. The hurricanes are worse. Um, that when you dry everything up, things will start spontaneously to combust. I think we get it. That, so we're not really any longer arguing about that. We're really more, I think, arguing about the best ways to deal with that. We're at an inflection point, I think, both in terms of U.S. foreign policy, the military's part of that, and in terms of the domestic transition that needs to occur. So I'm less worried about the polarization now. Oh, absolutely. I, I think that this present administration, the Biden-Harris administration, has put climate and climate security in particular at the very top of their agenda in a way that in many ways is unprecedented and is enabling a, really a generational shift in how we think about climate security across society in every institution. It includes the military, but it also includes every our diplo our diplomatic agencies, our development agencies, our finance agencies. At the very top, there are I think almost nineteen mentions of climate change in the president's recently released national security strategy. Um, and you know he talks about it as the existential threat, which if we don't combat our entire societies will be up, upended. The most important thing we need to do now is reduce emissions from as many sources as we can. We need to make it possible for our children and ourselves to live in a climate that is not so inhospitable that thousands of people die from too much heat every year or are flooded or millions are displaced because they can't grow food where they used to. So it's all important, but the priority for me is reducing emissions. I think military emissions are an important part of that story because they're 1% to 2% of all US emissions, and they may be as much as 
three to five percent of all global emissions. Now, there's plenty of room there for efficiencies, and that's why I've looked at it as an important element of a larger transition that needs to occur. And the big challenge is that we can no longer predict the future based on the past. You know, we're very accustomed to using historical weather forecasts or in national security, historical ways in which our military has operated in a region to plan and predict what we're going to do the next time the big extreme weather event occurs or the next time we have to undertake a a military operation. But yet we can't plan based on the historical record anymore because it's changed. You know, now we have 100 year floods occurring every couple of years and sometimes more frequently. And we have storms of intensity that we have not seen in any record in the past. So we have to think differently. In, and we can't risk a failure of imagination when we think about what the future is bringing to us. Professor Crawford noted that American presidents in the post 9-11 era have been wont to giving more than is often even asked for by Congress for military expenditure. This pattern has demonstrated a conflict of incentives where presidents want to give more money to demonstrate their commitment to security. And in such an environment, the military is not necessarily incentivized to carry out in ways that produce fewer emissions. Professor Crawford has also shown in her research that between 2001 to 2017, that is the period that encompasses America's wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, the United States' military produced 1.2 billion metric tons of greenhouse gas emissions. Is this what security looks like? In this episode, we've thought about a broader conceptualization of what it means to be secure. If we limit our imagination of security to one that favors greater military expenditure without a concurrent investment in finding ways to reduce military emissions, then ultimately we favor a form of security that creates climate insecurity. While the urgency of this issue may feel more distant for some, it is entirely existential for others. According to research, countries in certain parts of Africa will experience mean temperature rises faster than the global average. In these same regions, rainfall will become more unpredictable and so droughts will become more likely. Indeed, while it may be projected to get worse, the impacts are being felt now. In the closing months of 2022, tens of millions of people across the Horn of Africa were affected by crippling droughts, which also led to over 40,000 deaths. It's not difficult to see how environmental devastation makes it easier for organized criminal groups to profit off people's vulnerability. Climate change contributes to insecurity, and climate change contributes to violence. Our first episode interrogated the ways in which climate change, although a universal phenomenon, is experienced unequally, as countries in the global south tend to bear the worst aspects of climate change. In the next episode of Climate Change, America and the World, we will expand upon that analysis of the differentiated experiences of climate change to examine the intersection between climate change and race in both the American and international context. This episode was produced by the LSE Phelan U.S. Center by Mohan Mullick, Anderson Tan, and Chris Gilson. 
We hope you've enjoyed listening to the third episode of this climate change series. Please feel free to rate and review this episode on your platform of choice. The content and opinions expressed in this podcast do not reflect those of the Phelan U.S. Center or the London School of Economics. We'll see you next time.